So you guys must did a lot to stay cool because you're still talking. That's that's awesome. So I got a present for you. Uh, I'm not giving the message today. Oh yeah, yay! I need a break every once in a while. No, uh, we we intended to do this whole thing on spiritual warfare uh, that we talked about, you know, all this time uh, with Eric and with James both. So this week Eric's speaking. Next week James is going to be speaking, and they're going to round this out. Today Eric's going to be talking about, you know, the the armor and what that looks like and how we put that on and and stuff like that. And I'm waiting for the girls to get to the front because we have a gift for you this morning. They're in there. Okay, we're, we have Otter Pops for you. Because we don't have an air conditioner, but we can afford Otter Pops because they're cheap. <laughs> so uh, this is this is Eric Jafuri. He's one of our elders. He's going to be giving the message this morning. So as it comes up, welcome him, and then they will give you Otter Pops as they make them around the room. Thank you. Good morning, Element. Good morning. Am I on? Everybody can hear me? Good. Okay, why don't you stand up for the reading of God's Word? This is Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I pray that you would help us to see all that you've blessed us with, Lord, the resources and your power. And Father, that you would help us to understand what this armor is and how we can uh, appropriate it for our lives today. So, Father, we lift up this time to you, and I pray that you would speak to each heart here. Amen. Have a seat. Okay, here they come. Okay, I've got a lot to say this morning, so I've got to get right into it. I think I'm going to go just a little bit long, so let's get started. First of all, I love the book of Ephesians. You know, Paul's letter to the Ephesians is a beautiful and concise description of the gospel from the beginning to the end. You know, from the very beginning, he tells us that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and that God chose us before the world was created to become his children and to live a holy life. Our sins have been forgiven, and as a guarantee, God of God's promises, He sealed us with the Holy Spirit, who now helps us to become all that God has purposed for us to be. And then we see that, like the rest of the world, apart from God, that we too were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we followed the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that works in those who disobey God. And we were the people that also would just gratify our fleshly desires and appetites. But God has intervened. God has made us alive, the scripture says. We've been born again. And by His grace, He saved us who have believed in Jesus. And He's honored us as those who are related to His very own Son. Literally, He is reworking us through Christ so that we will live the righteous life that He intended from the beginning of time. And after outlining this amazing work that God has done and continues to do in us, we get to chapter 6, and Paul reminds us that we should not be overconfident even with all of the resources that we now have, it doesn't mean that the Christian life is going to be easy. He reminds us that we are in a spiritual war with a real adversary and that we will have to resist him in the strength that is provided by God. 
Paul knows that no matter how precise our theology and no matter how vast our knowledge of Scripture and God's truth, that we can still potentially lose battles with the devil by setting aside the resources that we have in Christ. And, you know, we see throughout the Scriptures that Satan opposes, uh, opposes God in everything that he does. For example, Jesus came to reveal truth. Satan came to conceal it. Jesus came to give life. Satan takes life. He's called a murderer. Jesus produces spiritual fruit in us, and Satan exploits the works of our flesh. Jesus uses trials to make us mature and make us strong, and Satan tempts us in order to destroy and devour us. Jesus came to set us free from sin, and Satan seeks to make us slaves to sin. Jesus is our constant defender, and Satan is continually accusing us before the Father. This is great, watching you guys suck on those things. But as we also know, Jesus has already dealt the defeating blow to the devil, and he has given us the ability to defeat him as well. 1 John 3.8 says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And Hebrews 2.14 tells us that through Jesus' death, he destroyed the one who had the power over death, the devil. Ensuring that we can stand against our enemy is Paul's main concern here in Ephesians chapter 6. And so we see in Ephesians 6 verse 13, if you have your Bible, turn there with me. Ephesians 6 verse 13. He says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now, the Jews during this time, they would have been very familiar with the armor worn by Roman soldiers because it was a Roman-occupied territory in Israel. And Paul, in particular, had plenty of time up close and personal. He was a prisoner much of the time. He spent much of his ministry guarded by by, uh, Roman guards. And we see, actually, in Ephesians 3.1 that he wrote the letter of Ephesians from prison. And then in verse 14, so we read, Paul says in Ephesians 6, uh, 14, Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. This is something Aaron talked about last week, about the belt of truth and how we need to be people that seek and know the truth. And we saw that truth is rooted in the nature of God and is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And the belt of truth for us then is to be centered in reality as revealed in God's words. But it can also refer to an attitude of truthfulness. For the believer to fasten on the belt of truth then is to gird oneself with an attitude of genuine commitment and readiness. And so it means to forsake hypocrisy, to forsake sham, to truly make following Jesus our number one priority. It's a true commitment. And just like a runner who takes off every unnecessary piece of clothing before a race, or a UFC fighter that strips down to his shorts before they get into the ring. I understand there was a fight last night. I didn't see it. The serious believer has to tuck into his belt of truth everything, every loose piece, of, loose piece of clothing, anything that might hinder their walk with God before going into the battle. So the belt of truth then is both a commitment to seek what is true and what is real, as well as a true commitment to put God first in our life. And then he goes on. And just like we are to have put on that belt of truth, Paul says that we are to have put on the breastplate of righteousness. In verse uh, 14, we see that. In these two pieces of armor, along with the shoes of the gospel of peace, we are to have put on all the time. The language indicates that the first three pieces of armor are permanent. We are never to be without them. Now, there were different types of breastplates. Some were made of very thick linen, and they hung down very low, and they were covered with animal hoofs or horns that were sliced, and they were hooked together, where they'd have little pieces of metal 
hung on them. And probably the most familiar one that, uh, that, that we see in movies and things like that are the breastplates that were molded out of metal to fit the body all the way from the base of the neck down to the top of the thighs. And the purpose, of course, was to protect this area here containing the vital organs, especially in hand-to-hand combat. You know, the helmet would protect the head area, and they'd use a short sword, more like a dagger, which really couldn't cut off somebody's head, but it could do a lot of damage to the upper area around the heart and in the midsection. And this is the area that the Jews called the bowels. And so the breastplate covered these two vital areas of the heart and the bowels. And this had a lot of significance for the Jew because the heart symbolic represented the mind and the will. And throughout the scriptures, we see that the heart is the source of our thinking. Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. And Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, Out of the heart come evil thoughts. And now the bowels were associated with our feelings and with our emotions. The literal language in scripture speaks about bowels of compassion or shutting up the bowels of love by not caring for somebody properly. And this is because raw emotion gives us deep feelings, sometimes an aching in the, pit of our, in the pit of our stomach. Do you know what I mean? Have you ever felt something so deeply you feel it deep down inside? And so the heart refers to our thinking process, and the bowels refers to our feelings and our emotions. So in terms of the armor then, the breastplate of righteousness is crucial because two of the primary areas that Satan attacks us is in our thinking and in our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions. So, pretty much everything that we do, all of our actions are the result of how we think and how we feel about things. So if Satan can influence these aspects of our lives, he can control our behavior. And so he influences this world system where we're tempted to think the wrong thoughts and believe the wrong ideas and feel the wrong emotions. Aaron talked about false doctrine and false information last week and how the devil uses that to cloud our minds and to bring confusion. If he can confuse our thoughts, he'll be able to confuse our emotions so that our affections and our morals and our commitments become perverted as well. And so he tries to get us to laugh at sin on TV or in the movies and to listen to cool songs about sin and put it to popular music. And if he can get us to rationalize and become used to sin, then our conscience is less bothered by it. And from there, it's a short distance to actually doing what we know is wrong because our feelings and our emotions have become corrupted towards sin. You know, after I had surgery on my uh, Achilles tendon several months ago, I was able to work from home for uh, about a week or so, and I started watching The Ellen Show. Anybody watch that? I, I mean, I love Ellen. She's hilarious. She's totally funny. And, you know, she loves animals, and she does a lot of good things for people. Um, she's just, you know, so likable. But before long, it struck me that Ellen will probably single-handedly do more for the cause of gay marriage than anybody else right now. I mean, she is likable, and at the same time, she's naturally open about her gay marriage. And it becomes easier for people to think and to believe that and feel that that's okay. And this is the kind of subtle influence that Satan can use to snatch the truth of God's word from us and to replace them with lies. If he can cause us to think that sin is okay, then we will begin to feel like sin is okay. And then we will begin to act like sin is okay. So protection against these attacks, we're to have put on the breastplate of righteousness. Like a bulletproof vest, righteousness is to be taken and to be wrapped around our whole being. Righteousness is the core of Christianity compressed into one word. And basically, righteousness is the will to be and to do what is right in God's eyes. Righteousness is having a right relationship to God. 
So, what is this righteousness that Paul is talking about? I mean, there are only three possibilities here. So let's look at what he's not talking about. First, he's not talking about our own righteousness or our self-righteousness. Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Trying to be right with God and earn his favor in our own strength and by our own good deeds, it doesn't cut it. It's not good enough. Paul wrote in Romans 3.10, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Actually, self-righteousness is one of the worst forms of sin. We read in Isaiah 64.6 that all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Self-righteousness is not the breastplate of righteousness. And if you try to cover and protect yourself with it, you will certainly be a victim of the devil. Secondly, he's not talking about the perfect righteousness of Christ that God credits to our account when we first believe in Jesus. Paul wrote in Romans 4.9 that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. And then in verse 23, the words that was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. This is something that God has already done for us. We see in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, the Apostle Paul illustrates these different forms of righteousness from his own life, in the book of Philippians chapter 3. And I'd like you to turn there with me if you have your Bible. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 3. Keep your finger in Ephesians. We're going to come back. Philippians 3, starting in verse 3, says, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God and who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, the flesh being our own strength apart from God. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. And look at verse 6. As for zeal persecuting the church, and as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul had everything in terms of self-righteousness. If anybody could boast in their self-righteous good deeds, it was Paul. But he goes on to say in verse 7, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. And look at verse 9 and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Paul considers his entire religious heritage, his experience, and his reputation as garbage compared to knowing Jesus and gaining the righteousness that that only comes from faith in God. But how can we put on as armor something that God has already permanently clothed us with. The theological term for this is imputed righteousness. Jesus' perfect righteousness on our behalf is the basis of our salvation because there's no way that we could ever attain God's standard on our own. So it has to come to us as a gift. But this only makes it possible for us to put on the breastplate of righteousness. 
It protects us from hell, but it doesn't protect us from the devil in this present life. And so Paul continues, Philippians 3, look at verse 10. But I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of, su- of, suffering in his suffer- of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet having taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now we're getting to it, folks. You see, Paul gloried in his imputed righteousness, but he says here that there's more to the gospel than even this. There is a practical righteousness that God intends for us to have. We need to make our everyday practice of righteousness match our permanent position of righteousness. The prize that Paul strived for is the same for each of us. It's Christ-likeness. It's to be like Jesus. It's to know Jesus and to be like him in actual righteousness and obedience to the Father. The breastplate of righteousness, then, is a holy life. That's what it is. Because without holiness, the gospel that we say we believe has no power. All we have are empty words and hypocrisy. You know, many in the church today have either forgotten this or they have never really understood it because the popular message today can be summed up by the bumper sticker that says, Christians aren't perfect, just just forgiven. Dallas Willard refers to this as the gospel of sin management, where salvation and eternal life refer only to what happens after we die. It's basically fire insurance, just forgiven. Is that all the gospel really is? Paul didn't seem to think so. And we're certainly not perfect, that's for sure. And we definitely are forgiven, as we've already seen. But there is a whole lot of room between being perfect and this understanding of just being forgiven. We are called to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, and to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We see that in Romans chapter 12. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness, then, is to live in daily moment-by-moment obedience to our God and Father. Not to be armored with this breastplate, then, is going to cost us in many ways. Number one, first, we lose our joy. Jesus said in John 15.10, If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. And just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. You know, many of the personal and the emotional and the relational problems that we experience are caused by a lack of personal holiness. Most of our discouragements and our disappointments are the result of a continuing sin in our life, and, you know, more so than even other people or other circumstances. And when we do allow other people and circumstances to rob us of our joy, it's because we have not protected ourselves with the armor of a righteous life. We also lose our fruitfulness, and we become unproductive for the kingdom of God. We lose our impact on this world, and we disgrace our Heavenly Father. Jesus put it pretty simply, as he usually did. That's what I love about Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, in verse 27, he answered, and he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That's all it takes, right? Easier said than done right? So what, what would your life look like? Would it look different 
if you truly love God like this? How do you even become a person that loves God like this? Is it even really possible that we could do it? You know, unfortunately for many of us, for many believers, their experience tells them that they can't. We know that we often don't love God like this or that our actions frequently don't match what we say we believe. And so we're torn between that deep longing that's in our hearts to to love God so completely that it just naturally leads to holiness and then the doubt that it could ever really happen because of our ongoing sin and failure. You know, it's interesting, as I was thinking about this message last Sunday, I was talking with a brother here in the church, and we were talking about this very issue, and I could sense that he was really wrestling inside with this. And kind of the conclusion that I got anyway from our conversation was that sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. Or more accurately, sometimes God wins and sometimes God loses in our life. And, you know, this kind of leads to the thinking and the feeling that we can't really live the life that Jesus said that we could. And unless we can justify our failures, we have to live with this tremendous guilt. So we begin to believe a lie. And in Revelation 12:10, you know, it tells us that Satan accuses us day and night before God. And we know that he has plenty of ammunition against us. He doesn't have to lie about the things that we do because, you know, we do sin. But the lie, but what is a lie, is the thought that this is all that we can be. That's a lie. That's not true. I've got some good news for you guys. You can be more than that. You can be people that love Jesus with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. This is the gospel. This is the abundant life that Jesus has promised. Jesus gives us more than forgiveness of our sins and the promise of heaven when we die. He gives us power to live an eternal kind of life here and now. We only need to seriously follow his example and the way that he lived, not just when he was in the spotlight, but all the other time when no one else was around. This is where the disciplines for the spiritual life come in. And so, you know, it's kind of like a kid who wants to be like their sports hero. They want to be like Mike or they want to be like Kobe. And so they buy their jersey or they buy their, their shoes and they watch all their games and they follow their every move. But what they don't see and what they don't practice are the countless hours of free throws and preparation and training and diet and exercise. Now, even with all of that, they may never be as good as Kobe or Michael, but how much closer could they be if they practiced with the same disciplines? You know, I played guitar for a pretty long time, and I would love to be really good at it, but I am nowhere near as good as Aaron or Michelle or Sean because I've never disciplined myself to put in the time to really practice and, and train the way that you have to, to to be able to play naturally as good as they do it. If you look closely, you'll see that when Jesus wasn't in the spotlight, when he wasn't ministering, when he wasn't performing miracles, he was often alone with his Father. He spent time in solitude, in silence, in nature. He prayed and he meditated on God's words. He fasted. All of these things he did and more to completely submit his mind, his spirit, his soul, his body, and his strength to the Father's will. This was so that when he was on the spot, in the heat of the battle, he was prepared in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, you know, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, the scriptures tell us that he was led and driven by the Spirit into the wilderness, and there he fasted for 40 days. And I used to think that you know, this was to make him weaker, to make him more susceptible, to really put him to the test. But you know, now I believe that the Spirit led him to the place where he would be the strongest against the devil. He was alone with his Father in the nature that he created. 
His body was fasting from bread, but his spirit was feasting on the words of God. And Mark tells us that he was with the wild animals and that the angels ministered to him. What a beautiful picture that is. This was his training for the battle. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 7, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. There are no shortcuts to transformation. Now, to be sure, it only comes by grace and by the power of God who leads us and he frequently prompts us, but God does not do it for us. He does it with us and he does it through us, but it requires our effort and our diligence and our seeking. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, you know, we are to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Everything else will follow that. So listen to this. We can do nothing without him, but if we do nothing, it will definitely be without him. Did you catch that? We can do nothing without Him. But if we do nothing, it's going to be without Him. So what or who are we seeking first? What are you spending your time on, your energies, your attention? Are they the things that will transform you into the image of God? Or are they the things that will feed the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life? Because those are the things that are the domain of Satan, which are influenced by him to keep us from living according to God's will. And it's the disciplines for the spiritual life that provide the training and the preparedness needed to stand against Satan when we are tempted and to endure uh, trials when God allows them in our lives. You know, at the moment of temptation, you know, in the heat of the battle, if you have not already prepared, you're dead meat. It's too late. It doesn't matter how good your intentions and your desire to do what's right. If you haven't disciplined yourself to seek God and to be molded and strengthened by Him, you just won't have the will or the feeling to do what you know is right. You will fail. I think probably most of the people in this room know what that feels like. And there's much to say and learn about the disciplines. And you know these are the things that help us access the strength and the grace of God to live like Jesus were if He were me in my body with my circumstances and my challenges. And there are plenty of resources available out there. And we can provide all kinds of recommendations on how to do this. But first, we have to believe and have a vision that God can change us. And then we have to make a decision to do it. The how to do it will follow that intention. Because you know what? There is no magic formula for the spiritual disciplines. It's not one size fits all. You basically just kind of have to know what they are. And pretty much they can be anything. Spiritual discipline can be driving the L.A. freeways and... You know, that's the discipline of you know, learning patience. Uh, but it takes then seeking God and experimenting based on your own individual needs and your own spiritual struggles. Righteousness, a holy, obedient life to God, that's our breastplate of protection. And joy comes from obedience to God and knowing the reality of His power working in us. The breastplate of righteousness results in abundant joy in the Lord. This is our strength and our protection, especially in the area of our thoughts and our feelings. And anything less than that is like wearing a paper breastplate. You can take your chances, but it's not good enough. Next, Ephesians. Go back to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be in verse 15. Paul goes on to say, And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Uh, the ESV says it this way, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given 
by the gospel of peace. So shoes. Shoes are extremely important. Can I get a witness, ladies? Anybody? Okay, I like shoes too. You know, we have shoes for basically every activity. We've got dress shoes, we've got work shoes, we've got casual shoes. We've got different athletic shoes for pretty much every sport. I mean, there are different tennis shoes for whether or not you're going to play on concrete or clay or grass. And if you're a tennis player, that's extremely important. But as a soldier, shoes are critical. Your life depends on them. I mean, marching on rough, hot roads, climbing over rocks, trampling over thorns, they could do a lot of damage to your feet if your feet are not protected. And if you've got feet that are blistered or cut up or swollen, you might not even be able to stand, let alone to fight. And in addition to that, the Roman soldiers' shoes or boots often had bits of metal embedded at the bottom or nails that would give them better traction and greater stability. And Paul says that in addition to having put on the belt of truth and our breastplate of righteousness, we need to have our feet equipped and ready with the gospel of peace so that we are prepared to stand against the enemy and to avoid falling. Now, these are not our preaching shoes. Some assume and interpret that passage this way based on scriptures like Romans 10, 15. It says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. In Isaiah 52, 7, it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach... Uh, oh, it says, how beautiful are the mountains... How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news and who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings and who proclaim salvation. This is the context found in Romans 10, but here in Ephesians 6, Paul's not talking about going on the road and preaching or teaching. He's talking about standing firm in this fight against the devil. And here, the gospel of peace refers to the good news that the, the believers, that we are at peace with God. In Romans 15, verse 1, it says, Therefore we have been justified through faith, and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And in Colossians 1, 22, it says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. The gospel of peace is the incredible news that we have gone from being enemies and separated from God because of our sin to being one with and to be, being at peace with him. So, sorry, lost my place there. So having our feet fitted with the gospel of peace means that we can stand in the confidence, in the confidence that God is on our side, that he is for us, that he's not against us, and that he's committed to fight for us. Um, do you remember in John chapter 18 when Judas came to the end? He came with the chief priests and the Pharisees and a troop of soldiers to arrest Jesus. And Jesus goes out to them and, and he asks them, who are you looking for? And when they say, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus says, I am he. And he knocks them all to the ground like dominoes. And as they crawl up off the ground, Peter grabs his sword and he chops off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Well, I'm pretty certain he wasn't going for the ear. He was going for the whole head. But he had confidence and he had a sense of invincibility that Jesus, because Jesus was for him and not against him. He had just witnessed this. He had saw the power that Jesus had. And he said, you know what? Jesus is on my side. I can do anything. And he gave him the confidence to fight. This is the assurance that God is, this assurance that God is for us that enables us to stand in his power against any enemy, even Satan himself, and to endure any trial. Paul sums up the idea like this in Romans 8.38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the 
present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are the shoes that we need to put on. That is the gospel of peace. And now verse 16. In addition to all of this, Paul says, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Okay, so you would think that if we have our belt on and we're committed to truth and we have a true commitment to God and we have our breastplate on, that we're living a holy life and we have our battle shoes on and, and we have absolute confidence in God's power and in God's resources, you would think that that would be sufficient, right? And in a way, it really is. But Paul says that in addition to this or on top of all of that, take up the shield of faith. Now, there were two types of shields used by the Romans. One was a small round one that was strapped to the arm and it was used in hand-to-hand combat. And the other one was uh, a very large shield that was designed to protect the entire body. And this is the shield that Paul refers to here. It covers the rest of the armor as double protection when the battle gets crazy and the fiery arrows start flying. Taking up the shield of faith basically means to believe and to fully trust God. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says that without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And we see in both the Old and the New Testament several times, God says, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Faith is a matter of believing God, especially when it hurts. You think about Job's story. He was attacked personally. In Job 2.7, it says that Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. He was attacked by his wife. In verse 9, his wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Why don't you curse God and die? He was attacked by his friends in Job 8, where his friends say to him, Surely God does not reject a blameless man or strengthen the hands of evildoers. And he lost all of his kids. He lost his property, all of his livestock. They were destroyed. And what does Job say? Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Job had faith in God. He stood against persecution and temptations and the thoughts that Satan whispered into his ears. These are the flaming arrows of the evil one. And Job's faith, his decision to believe and trust God, was his shield against them. David wrote in Psalm 18.30, As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. When Satan attacks our heads, we hold on with faith to the truth. When Satan attacks our hearts, we hold on with faith unto righteousness. And when Satan bombards us with temptations to immorality and hatred and envy and anger and pride and doubt and fear and every other sin, faith is our double protection along for the rest of our armor. Faith is a defense for all of our defenses. In 1662, William Grinnell wrote about ancient warfare. He said, the shield was prized by a soldier above all other pieces of armor. He counted it a, great, a greater shame to lose his shield than to lose the battle. And therefore, he would not part with it, even when he was under the very foot of the enemy, but esteemed it an honor to die with his shield in his hand. Can you see why Paul uses this to illustrate faith? Do you hold on to faith at all costs? Do you have a hard time trusting God? If you do, then you need to get to know Him better because the closer that you get to the heart of God and the more you know the truth of His Word, the stronger your faith will be.
We're in a spiritual war. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, whether you realize it or not, you're in it. There are no deferments. There are no exemptions. God is our strength, and he provides us with the resources, the armor that we need to be victorious. And victory is being able to resist the devil and to stand firm against him. Peter wrote, 1 Peter 5 eight. be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. Jesus came to give us victory over Satan, to make us more than conquerors through him who loved us. If we put on the armor that God provides, we will win. The band's going to come up. Yeah, yeah, that's you. And um, as we do every week, you know, we come to communion and uh, we worship God. We have the tables here in the front and in the back. And as we take the cracker and we break it, we remember Jesus' body that was broken for us. And as we dip it in the wine or the grape juice, we remember his blood that was shed for us. And as you do that today, think about it. You know, Jesus did that. He became our peace with God. He became our righteousness. He came to bring us truth. That's something that we really ought to consider and take seriously and think about how we're living today and what can we do differently to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. We're going to worship God. The band's going to sing some songs and sing together. We're going to worship God through prayer. If you feel like you know, God is speaking to you this morning and, and you really would like prayer to, to help you to you know, live the way you know God intends for you to live, there will be elders or deacons in the back. Come back and pray with them. Or if you feel like you know, this is the first time you realize that you have never trusted Jesus Christ for your entire life, Now's the time to do it. Go back and pray with them. They would love to pray with you. We're going to worship God through fellowship, hang around afterward, talk to some people. We're going to worship God through giving. We have the offering boxes on the side and in the back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, Lord, that allows us to come to you. You've become for us peace and righteousness. and You give us joy, Lord. and You want us to live a life that reflects your holiness and your goodness. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength and the wisdom, Lord, that we need to take the necessary steps to do that. So we offer our lives to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.